I'm David St. Clair, and you are tuned in to Teresa Keller's interview show, This Conversation. I'm hosting the show today with guest Congressman Morgan Griffith, and I know that you would wonder why Teresa is not doing the interview. The reason is that Congressman Griffith would not agree to an interview hosted by Teresa. After Teresa retired from Emory & Henry, she was hired to develop the communications plan for Anthony Flacavento, who challenged Morgan Griffith in the 2018 election. For this reason, the congressman would not agree to be interviewed by Teresa, and she asked me if I would be willing to host the show. I agreed. For those of you who listen to this conversation, you know that Teresa asks tough questions of everyone. I know she prides herself on being tough, but also courteous and fair. She is, after all, a journalist, having worked as a reporter and having taught reporting at Emory & Henry for a total of nearly 40 years. She has routinely interviewed candidates of both parties for Congress and for many local races. In fact, she has interviewed Morgan Griffith in at least three of his political races. These interviews are available through the archive site at wehcfm.com. As a listener, you will certainly have your own opinion about this turn of events. But Teresa wanted you to have a chance to hear the views of your congressman prior to the November 8th election, and so I agreed to help. I'm not a journalist or an interviewer. I'm a preacher, and I'm trained to listen to people. I did a lot of listening to the congressman. I had pages of questions I didn't get to. One of the questions I wanted to ask him was, why am I interviewing you? His answer would have been because Dr. Keller worked for a former political opponent four years ago. My answer is that I was doing it to help WEHC and the listening community and Teresa Keller. My fear is that I was doing the interview because my congressman does not want to be confronted or questioned by persons who may disagree with him. It's a basic right in the United States. It is foundational in a democracy to disagree politically and to be able to make your voice heard. For this episode of This Conversation, Teresa Keller's voice could not be heard. That bothers me. We go now to This Conversation. Hello, I'm David St. Clair. I'm sitting in today as the guest host of this conversation, and we have a very special guest with us today, Congressman Morgan Griffith, Virginia's 9th District Representative. You were first elected in 2010, correct? That is correct. Serving since in the Congress since 2011 and are now running for re-election, which will be your seventh term. Congressman Griffith, welcome back home. It's good to be here. He's an honors graduate from Emory and Henry in 1980. You went on to Washington and Lee, law school graduate. Worked as an attorney in the Roanoke and Salem area and then was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, where eventually you rose to a leadership position in the House of Delegates. House Majority Leader, I think maybe one of the first Republican House Majority Leaders in quite a while. Yeah, well, actually the, the first ever in history. Now, again, you have to look behind the scenes. Not everything is what it seems on the surface. The position of majority leader wasn't created until the middle of the 20th century. Okay. And the Republicans were out of power from 1883 to the year 2000. So uh, 
it, it's not that uh, it, it, that the position had existed in the 19th century and and no Republican held it. It just didn't exist. That position did not exist. Still, that looks good hanging on the wall, doesn't it? It does. It makes me feel yeah, good, too. It, it, was, it was 125 years, roughly, between uh, Republican majorities and the Virginia House of Delegates, so it was still something special to be the first one selected by my colleagues yeah. to run the floor action. Now, in the U.S. House of Representatives, you serve on the Energy and Commerce Committee and a couple of subcommittees yes, related sir. to that. You're a member of the Freedom Caucus yes, and sir. several other caucuses. And then I was intrigued to learn that you founded the Friends of Wales Caucus. Is that right? That is correct. And Wales we, needs a lot of friends now, do they? Or? They, they do. <laughs> and, and, here's, and here's the Welsh perspective on all of this. There are as many Welsh... Uh, folks in the United States whose families came from Wales as there are Scots. Oh. But everybody knows about the Scottish Highland Festivals and they think of Scots and the bagpipes. And, and so the Welsh haven't gotten as good a, uh, a PR machine out there and uh, organized as much, but that's part of what we do is let people know we have celebration every year at St. David's Day. And I, I was going to say, I do my part because yeah. St. David is, of course, important to me. Uh, and March the 1st is St. David's Day. Yeah. You gotta have uh, Welsh uh, ancestry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and I do on both sides of my family. Oh, so, okay. uh, it's a and, and I'm married to Davis, so my my oldest son is uh, Morgan Davis Griffith. Tell us then about your family. Uh, together, my wife and I have we have three children. My stepdaughter is currently in chiropractic college up in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and my boys are in high school at Salem High School. One is a junior, and one is a freshman. Now, as you encourage them to go to college and say take a semester in college in Wales, how about take a four-year course of study at a college in southwestern Virginia? I would love for them to do that. They have to find their own way in life. And as you might imagine, I have brought them here for football games over the years. And and right now, at least, they may change their minds as time moves on. But right now, it's, oh, Dad, you just want us to go there because it was your school. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. But it's a good school. Nothing wrong with that, actually, kid. Now, you're running for re-election, as we said. Your opponent is Taysha Devon. The election is November 8th. Early voting has already started. Uh, and if re-elected, this will be then your seventh consecutive term in office. And we want to take this opportunity to remind everybody to come out and vote on November the 8th. Your vote counts and your vote matters. I'd like to begin this conversation by asking you to help us understand what it is you feel that you have accomplished for southwestern Virginia, and why should people vote for you to return to Congress? Sure, and obviously, I'm a conservative member of Congress. I try to pay attention to all the bills, and sometimes there'll be a vote in there. People go, why did he vote for that? And when you read the bill, you figure it out, or I'll have a reason why it helps southwest Virginia. Sometimes I'll vote against a bill, and people say, well, why'd you vote against that? Well, you got to read the bills, which I do. Any bill that I'm going to vote in favor of or think I'm going to vote in favor of, I read it. I'm not going to tell you that I have parsed out every one of, uh, say, a 2,000-page bill, every paragraph, but I have read it all so that I can see what's generally in there and figure it out. Um, and so I've, I've worked hard to represent the district and, and reflect its philosophical bent in D.C. Likewise, uh, we've done a lot of constituent services. I'd like to continue doing that, helping people with things like Social Security, veterans problems, those types of things. And then I've also tried to work on jobs and trying to reshape our economy, particularly in the coal fields, uh, where I, I spotted a program in its infancy. It's now called Ambler. And that program uh, converts uh, abandoned mine land 
into uh, things that can be used for economic purposes. Now, folks may be familiar that we've had a, a program uh, on restoring abandoned mine land for decades, but that program just said you had to put it back the way it was. This program says we can spend this money and we can actually change it to the, the abandoned mine land to make it into something for economic purposes. So in Norton, we took down a high wall, and they were able to go forward with a project intersection, which is a, an industrial park there, and that's already shown some benefits. We cleaned up the old uh, uh, plant, in, and it was a private-public partnership in uh, Russell County, uh, where they had the old coal processing plant. They took down all the buildings, and there was a huge coal fines pond. That's where the it was too small to sell to anybody, mm-hmm. so they dumped it into this pond they created over decades and decades. And we cleaned all, had that all cleaned up, and now there's an industrial uh, development site there that's a couple hundred acres. It has rail, it has natural gas, it has water, because these abandoned mine lands are really pretty good because they almost always have electricity because you couldn't operate the mine without it. Sometimes they'll have natural gas. They usually have water that that comes to it. So there's a lot of infrastructure already there, but because there's a high wall or there's a coal fines pond, we can't use it. We've converted both of those out of this program. There's others coming. We've done some uh, tourism things like the Pocahontas Exposition Mine, that kind of thing. I want to continue doing that. And then people can argue whether it's right or whether it's wrong. But I now have the seniority that should Republicans get control, I will be the uh, committee chairman on energy and commerce over the subcommittee on oversight and investigations, which gives me the ability to look at things like broadband, uh, health care policy. Everybody knows about energy with energy and commerce, but they don't always think about broadband and uh, satellite uh, technology, the Internet. Uh, and I probably should mention uh, that when I was here, we started a swim team, which was a swimming club. They now, I think, have a swim team again, and you wouldn't think that Energy and Commerce would have this, but we're actually over the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee, and so Michael Phelps came in to testify in front of the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee about the doping by Russian athletes Mm -hmm. and how it was affecting uh, the quality and the fairness of the uh, international Olympic movement. And so it's a very interesting uh, subcommittee, and if we get control, I look forward to Uh, moving in that direction and investigating a lot of things. I hope we'll be able to get back to some of the things that you touched on, but let's start with economy. What specifically would you propose or do to fight inflation? One, we have to be a little more careful with the spending. Uh, There's been some good spending in the last couple of years, but there's been an awful lot of it, and some of it has not been uh, something that I think should have been on the top shelf. Anytime you have more dollars chasing fewer uh, goods and services, you're going to have inflation. Also, I think the United States should uh, be much more aggressive in using its energy supplies. I think we have to be uh, all of the above, and we need to figure out a way to improve our regulations, not to get rid of them, but to figure out ways that we can move things along. And what's interesting is folks on the on the left are beginning to have some similar thoughts because while we disagree on where we want to end up, we know that American families, whether they be Democrats, Republicans, independents, or whatever, they need to have their homes powered. They need to have their, their devices and their heat and air conditioning, et cetera. And those who want to go to renewables almost exclusively have suddenly recognized they can't get there based on the current regulations we have because you have to build new high-voltage power lines to, to wheel the electricity, to take the electricity from a number of different sites, congregate it, and then get it into the system 
to go into people's homes. The current regulations make the timeline that they want to have, 2035 to 2050, can't be done under current regulations. So we may actually be able to find some bipartisan support for some regulatory reform. Uh, I've worked with uh, Senator Kane and Senator Warner on some of this. We don't agree completely, of course, but there are areas where we agree. Like when they were proposing two pipelines for Western Virginia, FERC claims it doesn't have the power to co-locate them, put them in the same uh, area so they could be built simultaneously side by side. Instead, we're going to have two different swaths, swaths across the western part of the state cutting down through national forests and stuff. That never made any sense to me. Never made any sense to Tim Kaine. So there are areas on regulatory reform where we'll meet some agreement, and there will be some disagreement, of course. Uh, you mentioned an all-of-the-above yeah. kind of approach. Um, very recently, you were uh, over in Wise County, I think, and you were at an Ambler site, were you not? With the, I was. Uh, and the, um, presenting the proposal of uh, establishing a nuclear facility there. Yeah, we're looking at a small modular reactor that will go there. Now, it's going to be an, it's the, the plan is for the facility or the site to be an incubator for lots of different things. But the governor's really determined to make sure that we have the first small modular reactor uh, in the country that is outside of the military. Uh, as the attorney general said when he was there, he, he lived in the Norfolk area, and he said, we got 15 of them. They're all on ships, yeah. and they're small nuclear reactors, and we've used them for years, and they're very safe. What we're trying to do is to maybe go in that direction. They're not the giant things you're used to seeing, like Three Mile Island. They're much smaller. They're actually safer, and we can put uh, safeguards in there. But I'm really excited about that because that, that brings back an energy project to the energy region of Virginia. Uh, we have natural gas. We have uh, hydro. We have coal in the Ninth District. And now looks like we may get some nuclear. Obviously, we have to look at all the plans and make sure that it is safe. But we know from what's been out there for years, some Democrats and a lot of Republicans have advocated that this is a way to go carbon-free and still supply a baseload power for our, our folks who live in the area. Two of, two of the three of those sources of energy that you mentioned, though, are fossil fuel, mm -hmm. natural gas, and coal. And then nuclear has its own very serious issues, actually. I mean, I know that the attorney general is comfortable with the nuclear reactors that are on board ships, but the nuclear industry has not been a growing industry. The growing industry has been the, the renewable uh, resources. Why not continue to, I mean, instead of a small nuclear reactor, take the same area and perhaps do something more with wind or solar? Well, and it, and it can be. Folks can make proposals. That's the whole point of this, of all that acreage that we have there is taking that abandoned mine land and making it into a, a site to do all kinds of different things. And in fact, under the Ambler program, it had a different name back then. We called it the Pilot Project. We actually uh, put money into um, a solar facility in southwest Virginia. So I'm, I'm, of all of that. We shouldn't stop doing uh, renewables, but we have to recognize that based on the technology that's out there today, the renewables cannot take up uh, enough of the slack that if we got rid of all the fossil fuels, we, we can't get there as fast as some people want to. In fact, the, uh, unless there's some new breakthrough in technology, because you've got to wheel the electricity from 20 different spots instead of one big spot. We, we are really in a race against um, the the facts of climate change, though, are we not? Because we, 
I mean, we're seeing increasing uh, pattern, weather patterns that are increasingly devastating to the uh, to the West in terms of droughts and massive wildfires, and then the Midwest and Texas and Florida with floods, the rainstorms that are just devastating them, and these are growing faster than the scientists even had predicted. What hope do you see that we can get out in front of this? Well, I think what we have to do is I do think we have to have all of the above, and I think that we can use you know whatever new technologies come along. I would also say that what we need to do is we need to do more, and this is a federal government responsibility, we need to do more research on ways to deal with carbon fuels and their, and their negative uh, aspects, whatever they may be. And there's a number of technologies out there. We just need to help jumpstart those technologies. As we have spent money to jumpstart wind and solar, we need to jumpstart some of these. And you'll be there on energy and commerce. And I'll be there on energy and commerce, and I'll keep pushing for that. And, and that's an area where I think that we should have agreement with our colleagues on the other side of the aisle is that let's use our ability to solve problems as a nation to solve this problem as well. and I'm glad to hear you say something about colleagues on the other side of the aisle. A lot of what I hear and, and some of what I feel is a near cynicism about the political process now because it truly does seem that neither side is listening to the other side. It's an ugly atmosphere. And, and this year, uh, the first of this year, we experienced something that I never thought I would ever see in my lifetime on January the 6th. And, and I'll tell you, Congressman, personally, I, I went to graduate school in Washington. I went to seminary at Wesley out on the northwest corner of D.C. My favorite thing, and I went there because it was Washington. My favorite thing to do when I was in D.C. was to... Uh, drive down. In those days, you could still drive up to the Capitol. After Congress had recessed for the day, had closed for the day, I would drive down to the east parking lot and park there, look up at the Capitol dome as the sun was setting over behind it, and and really feel bathed, in a way, in a deep appreciation and love for our country, our form of government, Seventy-some percent of the public now in a recent poll indicate that they are concerned that American democracy is endangered. Do you share that concern? Uh, I I think we all should be concerned because if we're not concerned, things could happen. But I think that we're going to be the republic. I think the republic will survive. The vast majority, well over 90 percent of your elected political leaders are there for the right reasons. People who get elected to office care about their communities and they care about our government and our republic. But people need to stop, and I don't know how you do it, but people need to stop on the social media and the Internet sites castigating elected officials as being evil. When I was first elected to the House of Delegates, everybody respected each other. And I think that that respect level needs to be there. And you can disagree with them. You can pray for them. You can hope they'll have an epiphany. But we shouldn't castigate folks on the other side as being evil people. On January the 6th, you voted with 146 Mm -hmm. other Republicans, Mm -hmm. a vote that I would essentially interpret as an attempt to 
change the outcome of the November 2020 presidential election. Why? Well, I felt that certain states had not viol- had violated, had not followed, they had violated the federal laws related to the election process. And Congress has, has always had, at least since the 12th Amendment, the right to accept, to certify, or to not certify electors. In fact, in 1865, the electors from the state of Louisiana were decertified by Congress. They then passed the law that we're currently under. And in 2000, there were two court cases that touched on that law, Bush versus uh, Palm Beach uh, Registrar. And a unanimous Supreme Court said this was the law. And in fact, the law created a safe haven. And if you follow the law, you were protected from a challenge on January 6th in Congress. That if you left the, if the state left the safe harbor that was created by the law, you should be on, you should be warned, you should be aware that Congress may very well challenge your electors. These states left that safe harbor. It's what, they did Bush versus Gore, and they said we have to make a decision now. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of all people, came out and said, "No, no, 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 no. We don't have to make the decision in Florida. Congress has that authority." And January 6th is the only date that matters. Democrats, even some who have since criticized Republicans from January 6th of 2021, in 2016, were making a challenge. Every Republican elector, every Republican elected to the presidency in this century has had at least a House challenge. Now, Congress decided they should have been, and everything went on. January 6th, there was a group of hoodlums outside who disrupted that process where those of us who want to debate the issues and want to talk about the issues and want to do this in accordance with the law were interrupted, and that's inexcusable. That being said, I exercised my, my judgment on the states in accordance with the law that there is no precedent on the other side. All precedent says Congress makes that decision to certify or not certify on January 6th. And so that's where I was coming from. We can disagree on whether I should have voted for or against, but the law was very clear and the history was very clear. Further, I issued a statement after January 6th saying, okay, we ob- we've made our objections, we voted our conscience, we have to move on as a nation. And I attended the inauguration of President Biden, and then it was time to move on. And you would say to your constituents in the 9th District that Joseph Biden is the duly elected Fairly elected president of the United States. Now. He was duly elected. I mean, we, we can argue about whether or not every state was doing it right or wrong, but he was duly elected, and the, we made a decision on January 6th. I was on the losing side of some of those votes, and then it was time to move on. Um, I guess just one final question that, that I would have, and that has to do with health care. You've been critical of, of the um, Affordable Care Act. Uh, in part because you've indicated medical costs have gone up since its passage. Is that correct? Well, medical insurance for those people who aren't in the exchanges has definitely gone up. And even in the exchanges, it's a lot more expensive than uh, was ever anticipated by those who drafted the bill. I think that would be correct. And, and it put a burden on more, it put a greater burden on senior citizens than it did the rest of the population. And yet recently you voted against letting Medicare negotiate for lower yeah. drug prices. Yeah. Why? 
it's unconstitutional. The, the way it was drafted is unconstitutional. The Democrats drafted it so that it had a 95% penalty, up to a 95% penalty on, if you didn't agree to the government price, they could take 95% of your gross revenues. I raised it in subcommittee because that's, that's what we do. I raised it in subcommittee. As soon as I saw it, I said, this has got to be an unlawful taking. Subsequently, when we first brought this up, and it was we debated this over three years before they finally got something that passed. Subsequently, the Congressional Research Service, which is a, a body of nonpartisan folks who serve all of the members of Congress, did a report. They came out and said, yeah, it's, it's likely a violation of the takings clause and is also likely to be a violation of the excessive fine clause. They said both of those are likely to be unconstitutional. I'm not against them doing some negotiation, but it's kind of like the old Godfather movies. If you don't accept the offer, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you cannot refuse. That's the position we've put the federal government in. It's going to be struck down as unconstitutional. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. There were other ways we could have done it. The fines could have been a little bit less so that they weren't confiscatory. And then you might have had something that I could vote for. But even in committee, when we were arguing about it on a standalone, the last time we had it in front of our committee, shortly before it was incorporated into the big bill, I said, anybody, anybody on the other side got a precedent that says this is going to meet constitutional muster because everything that I'm seeing, including the Congressional Research Service, says it's unconstitutional. Crickets. Nobody said a word. We moved on. They voted. No way we went. They ought to listen to some of these folks who are saying these things because there was a bill that was not of great partisan consequence. Don McEachin, my friend from legislative days, Democrat from Virginia, raised an issue in committee about another bill. I looked at it, and the only thing I was upset about was I hadn't caught it first. He outlawed me. It was clearly a problem under, under Virginia law and probably every common law state on the east, eastern seaboard. Instead of telling us to go fix it in the hallway, which is what we would have done in Virginia, they said, oh, I don't know. Let's let staff take a look at it. You got two experienced lawyers in Virginia law with more than 30 years of practice who've actually been out there on, in, in the hustings practicing. Let us go fix that problem for you instead of saying oh, we're going to let the 32-year-old staffer take a look at it who has no experience. Sorry. So if the Republicans do regain control after this midterm election and you do become the chair of Energy mm -hmm. and Commerce. Energy and Commerce Subcommittee, subcommittee. Oversight, right. You um, you would tell your constituents right now that you will reintroduce a bill that would allow the government to negotiate lower drug prices? I don't know that I'll introduce it, but I certainly would support it. I don't have a problem with Medicare being able to negotiate, but it's got to be, you know, more of a level playing field than we're going to, you're going to accept our price or we're going to take 95% of your gross receipts. Okay. All right. Our guest today has been Congressman Morgan Griffith, and we have appreciated him dropping by the studio in a busy campaign schedule and giving us his time and sharing his thoughts with us. I'm David St. Clair, guest host this week for this conversation with Congressman Morgan Griffith. For next week's show, Teresa will be interviewing Tasha Devon, Congressman Griffith's challenger to represent Virginia's 9th Congressional District in the November 8 elections. You can find this interview and others with Morgan Griffith at the WEHC archive and podcast site at WEHCFM.com. And we hope you'll tune in to this conversation each Wednesday at 6 
and Sunday at 2 here on 90.7.